0: This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. As usual, you can catch us on the airwaves on 99.1 FM in Portland on Sundays at 4.30 PM, or subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts. Today I'm speaking with Dalia Avella, who serves on the board of directors of the Oregon Montessori Association. She trained as a psychologist, is a certified Montessori teacher, and has expertise in the education and international development fields. She has led her career internationally, but calls Oregon home. Dahlia, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Let's start with a little bit of background about the Montessori approach to education. Can you talk about that history a little bit and give us some context? And what does it mean? What does the Montessori experience look like for young children and for teachers?
1: Absolutely. I would love to tell you. It's very interesting, but we need to go quite far in time. Think about late 1800s in Italy, in Europe. So there was this woman called Maria who uh, was quite smart, very determined. She wanted to be a doctor. Obviously not something that people expected her to do, but she persevered and eventually graduated, doing very well as a physician from the University of Rome. And being a physician, she got a position helping in a psychiatric hospital associated with the university. And one of the things that she describes in her books as seen is that the hospitals in Rome were filled with children that were experiencing poverty, but she particularly wanted to work in this psychiatric hospital that was called the Great Asylum of Rome where they were, quote unquote, the feeble-minded and the another quote, idiots. That's Mm -hmm. how the terms were used at the time. Right, Um, right. So they, um, they had all these children there together with the adults and they had no hope for them because they didn't expect, the society did not expect these children to be able to do anything. So she felt very strongly about them as such to work with them. At the time, she also fell in love with someone and got pregnant, but out of wedlock. And... That was a Catholic country where that was not something you could do. So she had to disappear for some time to have the baby. She did a lot of studying about what was happening in France, because you might remember from studying, there was this boy in France that was found in the jungle when he was about 14. There are movies about him. So a couple of physicians had found this boy and they were determined to bring this wild child to society and help him how to speak and teach. So she was interested in what these physicians in France did. She translated all of that while she waited for the baby to be born, came back with all this knowledge from her European tour. The baby went to a family because it was so hard for her to become a doctor that I think she wanted to continue in the career. But imagine a mom that had to abandon her child. So she felt very connected with these children, started working with them and saw them as Children that, because they were under the care of doctors, they were not under the care of educators. Right. And, right. and so she started working with them using these tools that the French doctors had created and I started to get really good results. And people were very impressed. They were like, well, how do you do it, Maria? <laughs> like, how is it possible? We had no hope for these children. And so she created a, an institute that also took not just the children from the hospital, but the... The children that were at the schools and they were deemed, how do you say, the most dangerous in the community, the children that were subnormal, the children that could not learn. Those children, the schools had the permission to expel them. Okay. But no one had the responsibility for taking care of them. So they were left to their own devices right. and they will become, you know, homeless or families sometimes rejected. She took all of them. She took all of the children that took from the asylum plus all the children that Noah wanted and created this center and lived with them for 10 years. Um, and then after the 10 years of huge success, she was very famous, you know, and she started to wonder if I get all these results with children that had some difficulties, the children that are neurodiverse, how we will call them today, what will happen if I work with children that are developing normally? And at the time there was this project in the slums of Rome being built. And um this gentleman had this group of, a band of children doing all kinds of things that they should not be doing. And there was no one controlling these children or taking care of them. And for him, it was cheaper to hire this lady that he saw in the newspaper than to pay for the damage these little criminals were going to uh, have. This is all descriptions of the book. Yeah. So. They gave him these children, she started the school, and then she started to get tremendous results. And her key, she wasn't an educator. She couldn't have worked at a school even if she wanted because she was a physician, not a teacher. She didn't have the credentials. Okay. So she used the scientific method and did a lot of observation experimentation, created many materials. And based on that, uh, she started to get results, see what worked for the development of the children. And the thing grew and grew. She published a book, it was supposed to be called scientific pedagogy, that's what Montessori education should have been called. But then, um, you will know, like Obamacare yeah. and the Affordable Care Act, the scientific pedagogy ended up being called Maria Montessori or Montessori pedagogy, which is what we know today. Right. And it's essentially a system of education pedagogy that is based on the development of children and is based on serving the needs of children so that you help them develop. And the classrooms are well, spaces for the children to flourish. Right. So the experience for the child is an environment where they feel welcome, where they have materials that are very attractive to them and they can work and they can develop the skills that they want to
0: develop. You mentioned this as part of the history in the schools, that children were being expelled from the schools and those were the kids that Maria wanted to work with initially. Yes. And so there's a connection to what's been happening here in Oregon locally with the bill which is called Senate Bill 236 which prevents suspension and expulsion. As of today recording this podcast we know that that bill has passed and is headed to the governor's desk, Governor Brown's desk for signing. Talk about that connection between the history of the Montessori approach and what's happening today in Oregon with the passage of that bill.
1: Absolutely. Well, I wish it wasn't a connection because I was talking to you about something from 1898. Yeah. 1898. Yeah. And we're in 2021. And yet, still, this is something that happened. A child that has a behavior that is natural. I wouldn't say that all behaviors of children are things that are developmentally expected. Sometimes children have experienced trauma. Sometimes children have experienced difficulties. And just like adults, they will not necessarily be the easiest or generate the easiest of situations, but it doesn't mean that there's nothing you can do with them, you know? And so this bill, we've been working on supporting it because it's just developmentally appropriate for children to have support from adults. You asked me about what an adult in Montessori environment does, either a parent or a teacher. Well, an adult follows a child and tries to help the child do and support and grow developmentally. And that is what I wish childcare was because Senate Bill 236 is about the preschool suspension and expulsion. I mean, really, really, really young children yeah. Yeah. that have behaviors uh, that are difficult for them and the jurisdictions are difficult for others, but situations that need help, it's a cry for help for me and not uh, necessarily a, a badness.
0: I know you've been tracking the bill, so can you talk about some of the other pieces that are in there? It will ban suspension and expulsion by 2026, but there are some other components that I think are important. So, could you talk about those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, this bill does three things. The first one is that it directs the early learning division to conduct a small study on suspension and expulsion and report back to the legislature on results, because. We know that this is happening. We hear the families and the children and the providers. We know that it's a reality, but in this day and age, we need numbers and we need to know where is the impact happening. So this study is very important. It's actually gathering information from something that we already know that is happening. The second thing is that it's going to ban suspension and expulsion in early childhood programs that are licensed by the alerting division and that receive funding by the alerting division. But it's not going to do it tomorrow next month. It's going to do it in 2026. Right. So between now and then, there's going to be a process of helping providers and families and hopefully children prepare for handling behavior so that ideally in a fantastic world would be that 2026 is when the ban is starting and then we don't really need to because actually children are not being expelled anyway. Right. That's the idea until 2026. And then the third thing is that it will direct the airline division to report back to the legislature to give a recommendation of how to implement the ban. And we'll say, these are the things that we think should happen. And so those are the, the three key elements of this bill.
0: And you had a role in helping get this passed. You provided some testimony People were considering how to vote on this bill. And as part of that testimony, you've kind of talked about this already, but you did make the point that there's no such thing as a bad preschooler. And I'm just wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on that.
1: Yes, I honestly don't think there is a bad preschooler. The reason I, I gave the testimony, I have been helping with this bill from the back end as a researcher and information, and because I feel passionate about it, I wasn't planning on testifying, but I do watch the testimonies. So Zoom and the recordings are a wonderful thing. I was watching the videos and then I started to feel a little bit uncomfortable because of the language that I was hearing. And imagine you're in your house watching a bell, very excited about what to see, what these professionals have to do, what these legislators have to do, and what the testimonies. And the testimonies occasionally and then not so occasionally, we're talking about children being violent, children being bad, and saying things like, well, these children, there's nothing you can do about them except expel them. And there's this child that is super bad that this is what they did to another child. And essentially it was like a description that to my impression was getting out of hands. Like they were not taking into consideration that this was really, really young children. And they were treating them as if they were future delinquents and absolutely bad, bad people. So I felt like, I'm watching this and I felt like I needed to speak up. And so I talk about development. I talk about the age. And I made the point of expressing the age of the children in days. Yeah. And so I told them like these children will have less than fifteen hundred days of life. We're talking about, I don't know, four year old saying you are an evil person. It just it did not make sense. So we talk about that. We talk about development. And we talk about children growing and having needs and expressing in the way they can using the tools that they have. Sometimes they're so little, they don't have words while they use their teeth. And sometimes they will bite and sometimes they will get frustrated because, well, things are frustrating for adults and children, for all of us. That was the idea of the testimony.
0: Some of what came out of those hearings was, and some of the opposition to the bill, I think was around this idea that Suspension and expulsion can be tools to protect other students or teachers. I know that came up. And I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. And what is needed? What do providers and educators need then to support them as educators for young children?
1: Yes. So for me, there are two sides to this conversation about whether they are protections for other children or not. One side is my firm belief that providers and it's just like legisl- I have yet to meet a bad legislator. I have yet to meet a bad provider. I think everybody wants the best for children and they really are concerned about the children. So if you have a child that is having a very strong reaction and the other children are looking at them with their eyes with panic, you know, I understand that they will be concerned for that. And at the same time, If you know child development a little bit, you know that we do what we can. And so I think this child, this three-year-old did not wake up in the morning saying, hey, I'm going to go to my preschool today and I want to be hated by my classmates. I want my assistant to give me a stinky eye and I want (laughs) the teacher to put the eyebrows, you know, across. That's not what they want to do. No one wants to have a bad day. They just can't do anything else. They do what they can with what they have. And so for me, the result is understanding of both sides and seeing this is a difficult situation that requires a lot of work together and not just one training on someone saying, hey, this is what the technique you need to use. And so when you look at this bill, one of the elements that we're discussing the entire time was that we want coaching to be available. We want supports to be available for providers so that the provider can call ahead of time or the provider can say, you know, I have this child and something is happening. I can see the child is quiet. I can see the child is changed. What can I do? And they have someone that can speak with them and help them solve and help them work through the process so, that they were with the family and with the child to get to a point that is not that point of expelling, but rather a point where things improve yeah. and you de escalate the situation.
0: Right, right. Part of the motivation of the bill came from advocacy groups like Black Child Development PDX. And they were involved, I mean, many people were involved because of wanting to address the disparities in suspension and expulsion. We know that the expulsion rates and suspension rates were much higher for black children, particularly black boys and children of color in general. So can you talk about that context and those numbers and what the bill also aims to do around mitigating those biases in the classroom?
1: I think it's it's a complex answer. But... I think it's a complex topic here in Oregon. I, I've lived in Oregon only since 2014. And I remember that before, I've lived in four different continents and I moved from California to here. But only when I live in Oregon, I had to ask someone, who were the brown people they were talking about? Because someone was saying, well, the black and brown children. And I was like, oh, can you tell me who are the brown people? And my friend who was helping with Dahlia, like you are that person. And for me, it was so shocking because in other places where I have lived, I have not, I didn't need to learn the detail of the different terms. I've always been myself. I always had the skin that I had. But in the places that I live in Asia and Europe and here in the US and in California, it was never a topic. It was never important. And so I have seen being a witness and a guest in this state that it is a topic that Again, people have difficulty bringing it up, but it exists nonetheless. Right. So I don't think providers that will expel more Black boys actually necessarily are thinking that they are doing something racist. I don't think they think that they are racist. They might not want to be racist. I think most of the people that I have met in the state tell you that they are not racist. And yet, when you're a brown person and you go do things, normal things in your day to day, your life is not the same life that you have when you're a white person. And I can see the difference because I'm with my white friends and and I see that too. And so in this topic, I think what this bill and these conversations are trying to do is to elevate and say, hey, our brains, human brains, mammal brains, we classify, we tend to classify people naturally. And so there are things that we do, there are decisions that we make. We might not like to confess, or we might not like to acknowledge that we are uh, having behaviors that are racist, but the numbers will not lie. And the numbers will tell you that black boys are seen as aggressives and not the same way that a white boy with the same behavior will. Or you will see also, for example, that a family with a black child that is struggling will have less opportunities So you might have a family with a child that's struggling. Let's say that you quantify a tantrum from one to five. And so a child have a tantrum category five. Uh, That child, if it's in a white family, the provider might talk to the family, might talk to the parents, might talk to the colleagues. There might be more steps to solve the problem than the steps that will be used for the Black family.
0: Sure. Sure.
1: And so it's not exactly that you can see it, but if you look in detail, it's not so evident. You're not saying I'm expelling you because we are black, but in the same category five tantrum, which is not a category, I just invented it two seconds ago, but (laughs) in the same category five tantrum, a black child may have much less opportunities to do well or to compose themselves. And so that's when the issues start to happen. Right.
0: The prevalence of the suspension and expulsion rates, part of what you're talking about, I know those rates are pretty common all over the country. And I'm just wondering if you, you know, having been now in Oregon for seven years and experiencing what you've experienced, is it, why is it different here? Why is it so different compared to what you've experienced in some of these other places you've lived?
1: Well, I wish I knew the answer. I will be (laughs) writing books and being very famous. the main difference I can see is just there is less people of color here compared to other places. And so it's just new. I mean, I have friends. I love them, by the way. Like these examples, the friends that I mentioned, and my dear, dear friends, but I have had friends that I know they want the best for me. And they have asked me, for example, one of them once said, "Dali, I didn't know you, you needed to use sunscreen. And I'm like, well, sunscreen has to do with skin, so that's why I use it. I don't want the skin cancer, but please don't go and tell that to anyone else because it has to do with skin. And my friends were like, oh, my goodness, I didn't know. Uh, Thank you for telling me, and that's it. And so the only explanation that I have is speaking with my friends that are Caucasians. They grew up, born and raised in Portland or in Oregon, just didn't have exposure. They only knew white people putting sunscreen on. And so when they see the first uh, black or brown lady, or, you know, they say me, they are curious, like anyone will be. So I don't know. I think it's a very incomplete answer, but I don't think it's bad intention on anyone or most people.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. I appreciate you taking the time to try to answer that question. I know it is complex and maybe a book is forthcoming for you (laughs) on that. (laughs) One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was that I know you are working on efforts to better understand the impact of trauma on young children. Can you talk about what those efforts are?
1: Yes, I'm very excited. There is an organization here in Oregon called Trauma-Informed Oregon. They have different projects, and one of the things that they want to do is to spread the word and help organizations learn about trauma and help workers learn about trauma-informed care. And they've been doing a project for several years, they've been doing training of trainers, which is a, a very successful way, a very proven successful model where you train people in organizations and they go back to train others. So that way you kind of spread the, the knowledge. But these training of trainers in trauma-informed care have been in English until now, all of them. But we know that the Spanish speaking population in Oregon it has been growing quite a bit and they have their own experiences. And so I have been helping develop a research project and a concrete project that is creating the first trainer of trainers uh, for trauma-informed care for Spanish speakers oriented towards the Spanish speaking community. So we have a cohort of 25 participants that are going to be the first group that is receiving these materials. Everything is translated and everything is has been adapted to talk about things like acculturation. For example, in a train of trainers in English, you will not need to talk about what it's like to come into a different culture. Right. It's completely different from yours and what sacrifices you need to make and what what your brain does to adapt to the religion, the terms, the politics, the process. But that is something that when you're a wiki guest in a, in a, in a country, you need to do. Um, and sometimes those processes are difficult and they're difficult for the families and for the children too. And so we have a lot of groups that are sending participants and many of those groups work with children. And I'm very excited to share that opportunity because I know that the more work that we do and the more preparation we adults have, the better we can relate and help to children.
0: It sounds amazing. Are there other things that we need to understand about language or aspects of culture when helping train educators or adults to help them work with people experiencing trauma?
1: I think in my experience, working with all kind of providers, there is this idea of the equity lens and there is a lot of that being talked about now. And it's great to hear that people are very interested. I'm not entirely sure everybody quite understand what an equity lens actually is. And it's like, some people might imagine a Nikon, uh, some people might imagine a Canon lens yeah. and it's it might be neither, you know? The best thing I can say is taking some time to imagine what it's like to be that person, what it's like to do what you do. Uh, I have an accent, I grew up in another country, I'm an immigrant and being an immigrant, I have had conversations with colleagues about the immigration process in the U.S., And so, for example, it's very easy to say, this is a joke that we have in our meetings, but every time you bring up immigration process, someone will say, well, why don't you marry someone so that you get a green card? Hmm. And that tells you, well, you know, even if I wanted you and there is like this amazing match, it does not how the process works. Obviously that is like an exaggeration and a joke, but it kind of tells you that I don't expect people that have never gone through an immigration process to understand it. And so if you haven't, you can't quite make decisions or understand or know what that person had to experience. Because when you land in an international airport in this country, there are two lines and one line is for all the American citizens. And that process is different from the one that we, not American citizens, need to go. And so I don't know what happened in your line (laughs) in the airport. And so most people that go to the line, they don't know what happened in mine and what questions we could ask. So I think... If there is one thing I could say, perhaps just maybe you could wonder about what it's like. I wonder all the time.
0: Yeah. The power of being able to wonder and take the time to do that. Yeah. Uh, One more question for you. A little bit of a bigger picture question. But what kinds of changes are you seeing ahead of us that are good for children and families? You've talked about a couple of examples. There's policy change that's happening right now in Oregon but what else are you seeing on the horizon and are those changes enough? Are we making enough progress and are we making progress that's fast enough?
1: I think it's a great question. I'm gonna pretend that what I'm seeing is actually what I'm seeing. It might be my wish. I remember years ago, the first time I came to the US, this must have been like 20 years ago, the situation about race and racism and all the things and all the jokes aside that I have made today, they will have now been possible. For someone like me, I might not even have been invited to talk with you because why wouldn't you invite her sure. to talk about these things? Right. And yet here we are in 2021, uh, 20 years later, and it's happening. And if you asked me before, I'll never imagine that this will be possible. I think one element that I'm hoping and I'm wishing, and I think it might happen, is that in the future, people will see how absolutely brilliant children are, even babies. I mean, they're Way smarter than adults <laughs> in terms of just counting neurons and how many connections they're making. Yeah. Like, we are really not at their speed in processing. And they are learning so many things. Like, they're learning entire languages and vocabulary in such a short time. They have capacity to make incredibly complex decisions. The moment that you open your eyes and then you see how wonderful and rich children are. Even the youngest one that are doing things, you I think adults find them funny because they don't understand actually what the children are doing. So my hope and what I think is that in the future, people will be able to see children not as something fragile necessarily that we have to protect. They are fragile, of course, and we have to protect them, but they're also absolutely brilliant. And so I think there is more about participation of children. We might see it more now with middle school and high school that you want them to give your opinion or give an input on this bill or give an input on this policy. I can guarantee you, you can ask younger children. They will tell you information that is going to be useful if you know how to look for it and then you pay attention to what they're explaining. And so my hope is that there will be more participation because all of us adults are making these decisions about them and their life. And they absolutely do have memory and they do have opinions and they have pretty good ideas. It's just that sometimes, you know, the, the language or the way they express it is not what you wanted necessarily. I hope that makes sense, but it does. I think it's improving.
0: It does. It does. I like that a lot and I appreciate that perspective. We're going to have to wrap it up today. Dahlia, it's been so good to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate you making the time to do that today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me.
0: This show is brought to you by Children's Institute. We're at work transforming early learning and healthy development for young children and their families in Oregon. Tune in on 99.1 FM on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or stream these segments wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org. Pay us a visit, sign up for our newsletter, or connect with us on social media.